Welcome to Parent to Parent, real-life tips to raise resilient kids. A podcast from Communities That Care of Greater Downingtown. This is Chrissy Jambowski, and I have two young kids. And I'm Beth Ann Sinelli, and I have two adult kids. Together, we'll meet with experts and fellow parents to share personal stories and provide support and actionable steps to strengthen your family and raise healthy kids. We're glad you're here. Let's get started. Welcome to Parent to Parent. This is Chrissy. And this is Beth Ann. And today we're talking about what our Downingtown youth are thinking, feeling, and doing as reported to us from the latest Pennsylvania Youth Survey, also known as PAYS, data. And we have with us today our partner from the Downingtown Area School District, Sarah Brooks. And Sarah works very closely with communities that care. And in many ways, she is the, uh, the lead person for PAYS in the Downingtown Area School District and helps to coordinate it and to facilitate um, the data collection with the buildings um, from grades six to 12. And we're really excited that Sarah could um, steal a little bit of her time today to chat with us about the PAYS results from 2021, which we're gonna be talking about today, and how that impacts the district in terms of programs and resources. So Sarah, welcome. Thank you for being here with us today. And I thought probably the best place to start is to tell us a little bit about your role in the Downingtown Area School District. Thanks, Beth Ann. I appreciate that. My name is Sarah Brooks, and I'm hoping everyone can hear me okay. I am located at STEM with a classroom next door to my office, which has just gotten very loud. Um, but that being said, I work with student assistance services and wellness in the Downingtown Area School District. I've been with the district probably for close to about 15 years. I started as a prevention specialist at Downingtown East High School and then transitioned into my current role, which includes overseeing our 13 prevention specialists who support students grades K through 12. Um, and then in addition to that, I, I have a role to play in, in many other things, whether that be our district wellness advisory committee, um, our school-wide positive behavioral intervention systems, or PBIS. I obviously work very closely with our buildings and their SAP teams or student assistance programs. And as you highlighted earlier, I also am the point of contact for PAYS administering during survey years. So that's probably a brief overview in terms of my role in the school district. Awesome. And so today we are going to be talking about PAYS or the Pennsylvania Youth Survey. Um, and a good place to start would be maybe to explain kind of what is PAYS. I know students get a letter about this every other year in odd years, um, and it's only for students in grades 6, 8th, 10th, and 12th. Um, but, you know, we already have kids taking so many, you know, different types of tests and things like that. But we, as prevention education professionals, right, know the value of this tool. So maybe a good place to start would be, you know, what is it that – why is it so important that we collect this information and what is it telling us about what's going on with our students, with our communities and with our schools? Um, sure. Well, and I kind of do a little bit of the overview, but I think this is also a really great place for, um, for Sarah to also um, to share with us the district's viewpoint about this, because what's really interesting is I think that the Downingtown Area School District perhaps has done one of the best um, jobs in actually using pays in a useful manner. Um, and I think it's important for parents that are listening just to understand that the Pennsylvania Youth Survey has been around for a really long time, and obviously it's across the state of Pennsylvania. 
uh, for public schools. And, and it's also available actually to, to non-public schools if they choose to, um, to get this information, share this information. And here in Chester County, all of our public schools yep. um, are participating in this survey, as Christy said, in odd number of years for kids in grades 6, 8, 10, 12. But not every district uses it in the same way. And um, and I think what's really important and what Downingtown has done, I think, rather successfully is not just had administered the survey and received the report, but has really used it to assist with programming and resources and really targeting and focusing prevention, not just for students in school, but also for families and for parents and looking at how can we bring community partners together who have resources to support this work. So I think what's really important is that every other year, this gives us some ideas about what are youth saying? What are they feeling? What are they thinking about drugs, alcohol, tobacco? PAYS has expanded in the last few years to include mental health, um, expanded uh, questions around bullying, school safety. Um, And what I think is unique about PAYS is that not only does it look at youth, but it also looks at the, commu- the youth perceptions about the community, yeah. about the school, about their peers, about their family. So it's not just what are you thinking and doing. It's also what are your thoughts or perceptions about adults and drug, alcohol, tobacco, mental health, or your peer group. So it's got some really valuable information about what actually is happening and what students are reporting, they're feeling and thinking and doing. But then also what's really powerful about PACE is the, the perceptions. And you know, that's really where a lot of our prevention work then targets those areas. So we can see trends over time. We can see what I think is also really important is that we don't look at the data just to say, oh, no. Like, this is awful. Like, you know, all the, oh, no, you know, the, the terrible things that are going on. But it's really helpful to look at in what areas have we improved over the years, reduced use, or, um, you know, more positive attitudes towards being, you know, um, to not drinking, to not vaping, to not using marijuana. Um, and it also helps us to, to kind of look at what's trending. Like, what do we see that we need to keep on our radar? Because perhaps it's not a big problem right now, but we're going in a direction and we know from maybe national data or what we're seeing on social media that this has a potential to be something we want to look at a little bit more closely. So I just think for that snapshot in time, that information helps us. And Sarah, I was just thinking from your perspective as the PAYS administrator over the years, um, you know, your thoughts about the usefulness of it and why we take the time to actually say, hey, kids in grades 6, 8, 10, 12, um, we need you to do this survey. And again, not just to say we did it and check a box, but how has it maybe over the years changed for you or has the usefulness of it, do you find it to be something that's really guided conversations around resources, prevention specialists, counseling, any of those resources in the school? I do think um, the nice thing about Pays, in my opinion, aside from the way in which the district utilizes it, is I do also think it really allows for a nice partnership with organizations such as, for example, Communities That Care. And, and obviously, your team has spent a significant amount of time also reviewing the data. Um, and I think that's important because 
Pays helps to inform us and to guide some things in terms of maybe either support services that we're increasing or offering or even curriculum that we might be looking at Mm -hmm. uh, at various points in times. I think about over the past couple of years, the number of things we've done curriculum wise, whether that be with counselors or health and PE teachers. So I think the pays at a district level does help to kind of inform us, as you've already highlighted, on certain trends when it comes to mental health and substance abuse and things that we need to be aware of and cognizant of and purposefully program and plan for. Um, But as you also indicated, there's a a community element to that, too, in terms of what our students are experiencing and reporting, but then also what their families are experiencing. And I think that's also where the partnership between the district and CTC has really grown in recent years so that maybe we have needs internally that we're working on. um, But similarly, you have a lot of networking that you do within the community to, again, not to get ahead of ourselves, but to, again, really kind of work on identifying and building some of our risk and protect or our protective factors. So I think it's a really good partnership. um, And I think the pays obviously very heavily guides a lot of the work that we do together. You know, and I think it, Sarah, I think your uh, point that just um, is really important uh, for, for listeners is to really understand that, you know, that community piece. So it's not isolated information that just sort of lives in the district. But we recognize that because drug, alcohol, tobacco issues, concerns, problems, mental health, it's so complicated and so complex and has so many variables that it would be impossible for the district on its own to tackle that. And that you, the outreach to other professionals in the community, right, to other nonprofits or organizations that have these programs, it's really important to to bring them in to this community because that, it, it is a community. I mean, a school district's a community within itself, but then it also lives in a bigger community. So I think that that's really the value that you're not hiding you know, the information and just isolating it within and sort of like struggling because you're so tapped. I mean, all districts across the United States so tapped for what they can actually do. And you have really valuable resources in the community who want to support and be there for parents and for kids. And I think this is a really nice way to sort of circle the wagon, to bring everybody together, to talk about what those risk factors are. What are those protective factors? What can we do, you know, as a school and a community to support kids? So I really like that point. I think that's that's a really strong point for this. And the only other thing that I wanted to add would be that having this data available and being able to say, hey, look, here's some evidence showing X, Y, Z is happening in our community. It gives us an opportunity to be able to um, apply for funding. So as a person, you know, at CTC, we do apply for grant funding and that often ends up creating programs in the community. And so one of the ways that we're able to apply for that is many times funders will ask for um, specifically say, include your pays data here. Um, so we're lucky enough that we have access to that and we're able to do that. So just as a as an aside. Um, and something I probably should have shared also at the top of the show is that our setup for this episode is a little bit unique because of the way that Sarah, Bethann, and I all work together in all of these different ways. Um, you will have a little bit more of a panel feel to our conversation today because we all kind of have different ways to chime in with this. So now that everybody knows why we love pay so much, um, I think, and Sarah, you actually did mention, you know, risk and protective factors. So after students participate in this survey and they answer all the questions, it, all of this data goes 
and gets tabulated and formulated into this lovely, beautiful, giant report. And so um, the district reviews it and looks at it. Uh, us at CTC, we look at it and review all of it. And actually, I'll be linking up in the show notes. We've created a bunch of handouts that hopefully some of you listening may have seen in the community. If not, there will be link in, links in the show notes so that you can have a look at those. Um, but we did want to highlight some of the major points and things that we were happy to see that we were also, you know, looking at, okay, that's interesting. That's something maybe we want to focus on. And that's kind of what we wanted to talk about today, specifically focusing on the indicators for drug and alcohol. So alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs, ATOD is also sometimes how it's referred. Um, So again, all of these stats are from the survey that was taken and the stats that were collected in fall of 2021. And again, many of these do fall in line somewhere around the averages for the state levels because there is a comparison in this report. Um, And also national trends when we look at bigger, huge national surveys like monitoring the future. Um, So again, I'll link everything up in the show notes so that's there. But first we wanted to share what we are doing really well on and what our strengths are. And when I say our, I mean what the downtown area school district and community is doing really well on. Um, And then we will go over a couple of concerning things. So when we talk about risk and protective factors as these bigger overarching themes, uh, those are measured in a variety of different ways. So our protective factors. So protective factors are positive things, benefits. These are things that kids, families, you know, teachers, school community members, organizations can do that are protective and make it less likely for a student to engage in risky or harmful behaviors um, and also have better outcomes for mental health and things. So our top three highest protective factors, which is good news, are Family attachment, so 70% of kids said that they have high family attachment. 68% of uh, students reported family opportunities for pro-social involvement. And 64%, so more than half on all of these, um, said that there were family rewards for pro-social involvement. So can one of you chime in and just kind of, in lay people terms, that's not these, like the the pays jargon, explain what all these protective factors mean? I I think the way that I interpret a lot of this information is the fact that, you know, our students are reporting a strong connection with their parents and their family systems, which is obviously ideal um, and best case scenario in a lot of ways. We want our kids to feel supported and connected at home. And and obviously we understand that sometimes during the period of adolescence, there's also sometimes some turbulence that comes with that. Let's just be honest. Um, But it sounds like from what students are reporting in this past survey window, a lot of our kids are feeling strongly that they have pretty secure family attachments and also opportunities for positive experience, um, which is all good stuff in in my opinion. Um, And at least from, from where I stand, I don't know if Beth Ann has a different perspective or impression. No, Sarah, I think that's, I totally um, agree with uh, with your point about the, the importance of the family connectedness. And in previous podcasts and in previous parent programs through the district, we've talked a lot about how to sustain that or, or strengthen it because it involves, you know, good listening skills. It involves um, communication skills, comfort level, kind of carving out time and space kids to do things to be with your with their family so that everybody's not going off in a thousand different directions and and what i like about these statistics is we know that as we look at the trends over the years uh that these remain the top three 
in the Downingtown community, in the Downingtown area school district. So, I mean, and that's excellent to be able to report that that has, um, at least on the family side, been the consistent uh, protective factors. Um, and that is great because that's exactly the kinds of things that we try to keep supporting for parents. Like how can we, those things around opportunities and attachment and uh, connectedness for kids with families. And Sarah, though, you also made a really good point is that perhaps that's sometimes easier in the earlier years and becomes more challenging um, as kids get older, right? So as the conversations get more um, more challenging or more uncomfortable and there's more competition with social media and the kinds of things that cut into family time, we find that we might have to work a little bit harder at those things. But the good news is this is from grade six to 12 mm -hmm. and it continues to stay, as Chrissy said, quite high over 50% mm -hmm. of the kids. So that's something we most definitely want to continue to support in the community. I think the other interesting piece that's not insignificant in my mind, um, and while many of us have moved forward and want to forget that it happened, but keep in mind that there was a little thing called a pandemic kind of going on. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, good in the point. past two years, I guess. And so yeah. the reason why I say that is because obviously for a significant period of time, many of our students and, and families, as we all were, were really experiencing things, both life and school, a little bit differently as we were obviously in, in some instances, in many instances, you know, doing things remotely or not able to have the same level of peer connectedness um, that, that we had pre-COVID and post-COVID. So it's interesting to me to see some of those numbers and it's, I think yeah. it's good that they stayed consistent, um, but it's not lost on me sort of where the pandemic Oh, that's a really good point. That's good. Yeah, that's an awesome point. Yeah. So do you guys want to hear other ways that we're doing really good? And other things yeah. we're doing well on. Yeah. So other things where we're doing well are when we look at other um, trends of positivity as far as behaviors, right? So we see, and again, we're going to focus on in a, in a bit later on, uh, mostly drug and alcohol data points today and, and chat about those a bit. Um, but we are doing really well on tobacco use. So tobacco use for cigarettes among all students, all grades is very, very low. And it has been steadily declining since 2017, which is phenomenal. Um, alcohol and marijuana use overall among all grades is actually declining slightly, even if just by like a little teeny point or two here or there, it's going down, which is the right direction, which is great. So that's every data collection year as far back as we can see in the most recent report, which is 2017. And then also regarding prescription uh, drug medications and the use of those is very low. And the perception of risk of those is actually quite high, which is good. So that means translated, it means students are saying, okay, I, it's, it's risky if I were to take prescription medications not prescribed to me. Um, and the use rates are mm -hmm. also very low. So that's especially when we're thinking about the opioid um, epidemic that's still like kind of quietly humming along and still very much exists. Um, that's a good thing to see when you're looking through these reports. So that's everywhere where we're doing well. And now what we really want to talk about today is the risk factors and other things that stood out that we want to address. So we are going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we will talk about those. If you're enjoying our podcast, an easy way to support parent to parent is by sharing it with a friend. You can send it to them in a text from your phone, or even better, post an episode you liked on social media. Maybe it's this one. Our goal is to increase education and awareness among parents, and as we always say, you don't know what you don't know, and some people may not know we are out there. 
Any shout outs and sharing is appreciated. Thanks. And let's get back to our conversation. Okay, we're back. And now we want to kind of pivot and go over and highlight the highest risk factors um, that were that came up in our pays report for the downtown area uh, school district. So these are the things also that we are looking at as community partners and as a school district that we're saying, okay, these are our highest risk factors. This is what we want to focus our programs on, educational efforts, awareness, those types of things, right? So the top three that came up, because they only give us three, are um, 52% of students reported low commitment to school, 46%. So again, this is half or below. So 46% reported parental attitudes favorable toward antisocial behavior, which we'll explain when we, what that means when we get to it. And 42.5% um, reported having perceived risk of drug use, meaning that they had lower perceived risk of drug use, didn't think drugs were use was very risky or harmful. Um, so just with that first one, I guess you could say, you know, a little over half of kids are reporting low commitment to school, which just as an aside is something that, you know, I think we all three can speak to, to that this isn't an isolated thing just to our community, that this is definitely a national trend, a state trend, something that we're seeing educators and students report. Um, and I don't know if either of you want to jump in and kind of expand on that. I do think, Chrissy, it's, it's important to kind of highlight that that's not specific or exclusive to Downingtown. I think um, it probably is representative of much larger themes in terms of just challenges that we have experienced both as youth but also as a society. Um, I think, obviously, in a perfect or an ideal world, we want our kids to come to school and, and feel like it's a safe environment and they can engage in the learning that they are being exposed to and that that will ultimately set them up for a successful future. Um, but we also understand that, especially in the past couple of years, I think there have been a lot of things that have happened um, that probably contribute at times to kids perhaps feeling differently than that. And certainly, again, I mean, I don't think that's specific to our district in any way, shape, or form. Um, and in all honesty, like as I, I referenced earlier, sitting in a, one of our high schools, I mean, I, I listen on a daily basis to classroom lessons that are happening right outside my door. And I listen to teachers who are very engaging and students who are definitely responding in a positive and a favorable way. So the numbers may be a little bit um, hard to hear but I don't think it's exclusive to us by any means. Mm -hmm. No, I totally I agree with, um, with Sarah and Chrissy, your comments on this. The low commitment to school um, is again, one of those uh, data points that we have over the years. It, it remains in our risk factor bucket for us. But again, as I've also know from conversations with other partners in the community that this is something that we see at the county level. So mm -hmm. that's similar to other Chester County schools, districts, and of course, as you said, state and national. So all of the things that we've talked about, whether it's pandemic related, whether it's, you know, increase in technology and, you know, what students see as useful and purposeful and important for them to know and be able to do and the impact that it has on their future, um, I think is a way bigger issue that was going to require a lot of um, a lot of consideration because it's been it's been consistent over time there is no quick fix for that and I think to Sarah's point what's really important is on any given day in any classroom in any building you will see incredible um, engagement 
between teachers and students. Um, so it's something that, again, we don't, it's not a trait of Downingtown Area School District, and it's not something unique at all yeah. to us. I think the only other thing that I was going to add, and, and I don't think it's necessarily captured in this survey or this information specifically, but, you know, the other piece that crosses my mind when I think about just my years in the district and, and working with different students in different schools is also the fact that, you know, different students have different plans at post-secondary and different needs. And some kids that I've worked with in the past, I will say, you know, sometimes the best thing for them was actually having an opportunity to, for example, to like attend one of our vocational schools um, and to pursue other things, whether it be a trade or another area of interest. Um, and sometimes that really created a very different educational experience for that student, whether it be just the ability to transition between two buildings or the fact that they could have more hands-on activity during the day or the fact that they could finish high school with certain certainly certain certifications yeah. that were going to afford them job opportunities without necessarily pursuing a college degree. Um, I think it's important for us to remember that there are all kinds of learners and there's all kinds of paths. Mm -hmm. Um, that that's a great mm -hmm. point. I mean, yeah. that's that. I think that is a, that's a huge um, something to remember that those opportunities are out there for kids, and that if they choose to do a um, post, you know, not necessarily higher ed, but begin that process of looking at career while they're in high school, that they're going to have a different experience. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's a great point. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah. Um, so the other bottom two. Right. Well, bottom on my screen on what the document I'm looking at. But um, as far as parental attitudes favorable toward antisocial behavior and perceived drug use. And so it's interesting that these two popped up as two things because they're related in a way. Right. They fall under the sort of umbrella of drug and alcohol use. Um, and so thinking of so can you know, when we say uh, parents is it parental attitudes favorable to, toward antisocial behavior? So when you actually go back and look up at this in the report, basically that means that youth are saying that their parents are in favor of or accept antisocial behavior. So antisocial behaviors can include drug and alcohol use. It can include fighting with others. It could include stealing. It could include and of course you're saying, well, okay, most parents probably don't approve of stealing, but it's, it's again, the student's perception of things. Um, so, or, you know, so it's interesting that that was one of the things that popped up and also that less than half of students are saying they perceive drug use as risky. So that means that more than half are feeling that drug use is not risky. When we talk about behavior, we look talk about health behavior and the theories around health behavior. Mm -hmm what we know is more powerful is not, sadly, it's not knowledge. Mm. Sadly, it is not facts. Sadly, it's not scientific literature, research, or, or any of that. What actually drives behavior are perceptions, accurate or not. Mm -hmm. So if I'm an adolescent and I perceive wrongly, rightly, but I perceive that adult figures in my life, parents in this case, appear to find that you know there there's no issues or very little issue with drug use or with fighting or stealing or any of these things or i perceive that adults in my life don't really feel that drug use overall is dangerous or risky mm -hmm. um, perhaps because the things that are modeled or because of things that are said or whatever it is that will drive my behavior and you could argue it all day long right you could say 
you know, that's not accurate. You could say, but here's the statistics. You could say, here's the consequence of marijuana use on the developing brain. Here's the danger of vaping. You, you could spend all of that. But if I perceive and my attitude is such that this is what others are saying and doing and thinking, I, that is the adolescent, feel that that's what justifies or influences or impacts my behavior. Right. And that's a very difficult thing because I could make, I could walk into a health education class in grades six to 12 and super quickly increase kids' knowledge about vaping Mm -hmm. before the class period ends. Mm -hmm. They could be experts. Mm -hmm. However, if that information lives isolated from what they're seeing or they think is happening or the social norms or whatever, then that 30 minute lesson is put back somewhere Mm -hmm. because I'm going to base my behavior on what I think the perception is. Mm. So I think that that, you know, to your point, whether or not parents are, I don't think parents are coming out and saying it is so, it is perfectly okay for you to underage drink. And I'm totally behind your marijuana use. Mm. And if you steal, that's good. No, I truly do not believe anybody is, saying that but what's interesting is where's that perception coming from right and the two risk factors chrissy that you just mentioned mm-hmm. parent attitudes favorable toward antisocial behavior and perceived risk of drug use remains in our top three and they have been consistently bucket, for uh, risk factors many so no matter you know which says a lot for us about well what do we need to target then yeah, right. to shift that like what's contributing to that and how do we move it from being a frequent flyer of our risk factors and that's what i want to talk about is kind of like how do we make these shifts because just to share um on sarah did you want to add something i just want to make sure i'm not letting you i think the only thing that i was going to add is if you're trying to find a silver lining in that yeah we talk a lot about the fact that parents, even when they don't feel like they're having an impact on their children, Mm. do. Right. So like certainly some of the things that we did last year, I'm thinking about parent programming that we offered for certain buildings. And and as you've already sort of spoken to the conversations we have about how to navigate difficult conversations and how to push into hard spaces and how to keep communication open, not only from when your child is a child, but to when they're a teenager like at the end of the day, I think the other piece of this that I look at is for the many parents who feel like their kids aren't watching, aren't listening, or they don't have impact mm-hmm. on their child. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. And and I will say that is the common theme, even from, you know, an episode that we, the past few episodes that we've recorded and many from like last year too, is always just the role modeling piece and the parent piece of, which I know we're going to get to, but just the piece of it's not necessarily what you say, but what you do or a combo of the two. But I want to stay on this perception thing for a minute before, and maybe, you know, getting to the actual like use of lifetime use and 30 day use and things, because these are the data points. These are the questions that, that students are asked that feed into these risk factors, right? So when we think about perceptions, and this is the piece of this that I find so interesting because this has to do with something called social norms. And again, that has to do with um, reality of like what's really happening versus everyone's perception of what is happening, right? So the perception could be, oh, well, everybody vapes or everyone smokes marijuana. 
But we know that for 30 day use among 12th graders, only 35%, which is not nothing, but it's less than half, not all, not everybody drinks, right? 35% of students in 12th grade have drank alcohol in the past 30 days and 22% have used marijuana. So again, still want to pay attention to those stats, but the perception is quote unquote, everybody does this when in reality, it's definitely not even, it's not half. When we think about perceptions of for our, you know, community, you know, what we found was the theme was that students were feeling like alcohol and marijuana weren't necessarily very risky um, and that alcohol was easy to get and that they wouldn't get caught if they were underage drinking. So these were the top things. When you put them all together, they're actually quite linked. So we found that about one out of three students accepted regular alcohol use by grade 12. So uh, among 12th graders, they're like, eh, it's not a big deal if somebody drinks regularly. That's my age. Um, three out of four students felt that if a kid drank alcohol in their neighborhood, he or she would not be caught by the police. And then almost 70% of seniors thought that alcohol would be easy or sort of easy to get. And the last one is one out of three students in 12th grade thought that most adults, so not just parents, but adults over 21 years old in their neighborhood would think it was, quote, not at all wrong or a little bit wrong, end quote, for kids their age to drink alcohol. So when you look at all of these things put together, and again, these are all put together in the handout that'll be linked that's specifically about these alcohol stats. Um, you're seeing this, you know, and, and maybe you both can kind of chime in to explain how, what are the different little factors and variables and things that contribute to these perceptions. But the perception is alcohol is pretty easy to get by 12th grade. Cause again, all of these, uh, indicators and things, they start lower in the sixth grade, which is the first year that kids are surveyed and they go up each year. And so they peak at 12th grade, which also, if you think about it, this is when kids have the most, you know, students have the most freedom they're getting ready to go to college. Um, this might also be the age where they're more likely to experiment with drug and alcohol use, but also might be in environments where it is permissive. And there might be environments where, oh, you're going to college next year. You need to learn to drink responsibly at home before you leave, right? So um, is there, yeah, what do you all think about these these stats? Uh, well, when I look at this, again, not surprised. Number one, not surprised. Number two, this has been a consistent trend in our district and in others, and also probably state and national data would support this. And I think that it's also interesting to look at the points in time when kids participate here in this in the survey. And that is up to about fifth grade, I think, and I've always felt like this as a health educator in the classroom, up to about fifth grade, the kids are right with you. They're going to say no to drugs. They're going to do the red ribbon. They're going to sign the pledges. Drugs are bad. Alcohol's bad. It's yeah. all bad. Yeah. It's all bad. It's like the way I live. Like all snakes are dangerous. All green plants are poison <laughs> ivy. It's very simple. Very black and white. It's yeah. very black and white. They got this. However, how interesting is it that at sixth grade still kind of holds on to this? You know, it's still playing around at the upper elementary age. We're not quite middle school, depending on how you look at it. But we, get, we also administer the survey in the fall. So sixth graders are still kind of fifth grader-ish, right? It'd be interesting to see what happens at the end of that sixth grade, but we, we it's always in the fall. Okay. But watch what happens, as Chrissy mentioned, sixth grade to eight. That's a transition 
There's a year, right? Eighth graders, sixth graders leave the building. Yep. They go to a seven, eight building. Eighth graders leave the building. They go to ninth grade or, you know, they're, they're going then into, into the, the high school, school building, setting, right? right? Tenth graders, as Christy already mentioned, are 12th graders who are kind of really already got one foot out the door. So I think it's always interesting to look at the perception uh, of danger. It, it decreases. So when I'm in fifth grade saying, oh, no, I'm saying no to drugs forever and always, it's, it's awful. I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, maybe still in sixth grade, but not eighth, not tenth. And by twelfth, look at those percentages where they're thinking that it's not that dangerous. It's easy to get. We won't get caught. What is that about? Mm-hmm. Is that they never had that experience yet? Or is that an experience that their peers have had and told them? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that the disapproval, what they see as adults approving and disapproving, uh, all of that, I find that to be just a phenomenon of um, going from tweens to, you know, pre-adolescent to adolescent. Um, the whole, it can't happen to me. You know, I'm invincible. Yeah. I'm, you know, all of those things, uh, just it increases with age. And we've battled that as health educators for years yeah. is the power of the perception and the adolescent mind about what's dangerous and what's not. And I think it really speaks to then, you know, the influence of parents or adults mm-hmm. in their life that kind of have to guide them through that because we're, we're battling the problem of perception, which is always, I think one of the most difficult things to do in prevention world. I guess the, the two things that also kind of cross my mind as we're looking at this is, um, one, I, I feel like, and, and again, this is not specific to Downingtown, but, you know, one of the things that I've heard students say for years is there's nothing to do here. Really? <laughs> They're bored. Uh-huh. I think we have a lot of kids who, um, in their mind, think that if they lived, for example, in a city or something like that, there would be more to do and more access to fun things and a, just a much more busy, maybe, lifestyle and access to things. And so... I guess the reason why that pops into my mind in the context of this conversation is is also, you know, when we even go back to the beginning of this discussion and the fact that, you know, we look at as a protective factor, like the relationship between our students and our kids, but then maybe we still need to do some growth and some improvement in terms of like community involvement. I feel like it's been a a conversation for as long as I've been here in terms of, you know, how do we build other opportunities for our students to be engaged in the things in the community so that they do have other places that provide protective factors, but they're also, I hate to say it, but they're busy. Like sometimes having too much free time isn't a good thing for certain kids. I know that we have hard balance to sort of balance like the stress of, of this age range and school and all of that stuff. Um, And some of our kids are very fortunate and involved in a lot of things like extracurriculars and things of that nature, but some of our kids aren't and really need an opportunity to be able to get more involved with positive things in the community. I think the other thing, and it's, it's not completely on topic. It's probably its own podcast session, um, but is also just the reality. I feel like we've had conversations at times, and especially during the pandemic, you know, we talked about sort of the level of parental stress and also the fact that, you know, social media, in addition to just basic society, whatever, has kind of really changed the narrative when it comes to drinking and truthfully yes. marijuana use as well. Yep. Um, and obviously the legalization of marijuana in certain places has really drastically changed the narrative. Yes. 
So it's really hard to sort of, you can't overlook those variables in my opinion. No. Those are good points. Great. That's a great point. Sarah. Really? Yeah, absolutely. And what I've always struggled with as a health educator, again, um, to Sarah, to your point is that you know, we, we're never going to be quite, we're never going to be able to combat sort of the, the power of that social media piece, right? Because that's really slick. I mean, that's really, it's impressive. It's catchy. It, it, it knows how to manipulate the brain. It knows how to do all the stuff. It knows how to do so well. And when we're doing our programs or we're talking with kids or we're doing a lesson, it is really hard to be able to amp it up, to be at the same level of what they're hearing and seeing on, you know, other social media platforms, mm-hmm. all the things that are out there. We just can't do it. It's, it's a tough battle. I mean, it, it really is difficult to overcome what contributes to the perception again of this. And as you said, when you have legalization of substances, even though we're talking about adult use and not um, it's adult marijuana use, right. it's certainly not any different than alcohol use. Um, but it does, it does play into for the adolescent mind, how difficult it is for us to kind of combat those in a limited amount of time in a school setting. That's why working with families, working as you said with the community, engaging more community partners, more opportunities to be active in the community, to be rewarded for positive things in the community that we just need a lot more of that because we're not going to beat social media Mm -hmm. where we've lost that battle. That's that, that train is gone. That horse is out of the barn. Yeah. So we're not going to be able to get that back. (laughs) I mean, one silver lining I will say is like, we're saying, you know, it's one out of three with a lot of these stats is one, uh, three out of four, uh, three out of four felt they wouldn't be caught by the police. So like certain indicators, again, it's not the majority, but again, we have a very large community. So even if you're saying one out of three, that still accounts for many, many youth, right? Um, Yeah. And, you know, and I know when we think about as far as, um, other things. It just made me think of this related piece of this as when you were saying, Sarah, about how some, you know, kids say that there's nothing to do, right? Um, is also, you know, the perp, the reasons and root causes as to why some students might choose to use drug and alcohol, right? So that's for a variety of reasons. And that could be linked to, you know, self-medicating, coping with stress, recreational experimentation, um, something to try to escape whatever it is, you know, so there are these underlying reasons too, and we can't ignore necessarily that, um, mental health link there because there are some indicators within the full report that do show that there is a link between, especially for students specifically, I think the indicators for, um, it asks for students that report being moderately or highly depressive, having moderate or highly depressive symptoms, that there is a link shown between using um, alcohol and marijuana. And so we know, again, if anyone, you know, that's seen some of our other programmings and things is that there is a link between drug and alcohol and mental health. There always has been, right? And it's always the kind of the chicken or the egg. What came first, the drug and alcohol use and then the mental health, maybe diagnosis or challenges or vice versa. Um, So that is something just to consider as we're thinking about rates of use as well as, I mean, I know it's a little bit a separate thing from perceptions, but I just wanted to be sure to mention it here. Even though this episode is a little bit different of a setup, we do like to end with take action tips. And so, and Sarah, you know, I'm going to call on you to share resources and things that exist within the district 
domain. Um, but also maybe just even the three of us, considering all these, you know, especially we spend a lot of time talking about perceptions. What would be things that we can share with those that are listening um, regarding this drug and alcohol aspect to this, you know, what we're seeing as far as these perceptions and kind of this low mm-hmm. perceived risk and thinking that adults think it's okay. So what's, how do we, how do we curtail that? So how do you come up and what are the behaviors that then will offset those perceptions? I guess you could say. Um, well, a couple things come to my mind here as I go back to this idea of grade six to 12. One of the things that stands out in my mind is that the conversations we have with our kids about alcohol, tobacco, and drug use is not a one and done conversation, right? Um, it's ongoing. And as uncomfortable as it is to start those chats early, even elementary school aged, even when your first thought is my kid doesn't even know what this is, or I don't want to put any ideas in their head for use, or they don't have the brain capacity to get this. Just like anything else we do when we talk with our kids, because we are the primary educator of our kids. I mean, it, you know, from a very, very early age, right? Um, long before formal education might even start for them, that we have to get comfortable with having these chats that are developmentally appropriate you know, and continuing to have and navigating the challenging conversations and having the communication. Um, And whether that's communicating your values, your family values um, around, could be around use of drugs, alcohol, tobacco, uh, celebrations, role modeling, all of the formal and informal opportunities that we have for kids to recognize. And again, it's tied to values because values are another thing that drive behavior. So if you're you're talking about your family values and consistency, and it's not going to because because kids will be challenged, right? Their values will get challenged by their peers. They'll be challenged by social media. They'll be challenged in every setting that you cannot control because you're not going to be with them. You're not going to live in their back pocket. Yeah. So that's why, to me, the perception battle I think is maybe best fought <laughs> um, for parents to have those communication to have those talks. Mm-hmm. Um, those opportunities, whether it's something you see on TV, something that's in the media, something that happens in your family, whatever it is, and to get comfortable with having those conversations. So to me, that's kind of a takeaway is the role modeling, the communication, the values. Um, and we do it we do it consistently over time. We don't wait, oh my gosh, you're going to go off to college next year. We need to really talk about this. It's done. It's too late. Yeah. And I would say also just to add to that, you know, um, and different things and materials and things that we share is just having really clear boundaries um, that, you know, and not providing alcohol to people that are under 21 um, and, you know, having a clear value and a clear, consistent boundary around that. Because we do know, I mean, studies have shown repeatedly over and over and over again the more clear the boundaries and expectations are around drug and alcohol use, around underage drug and alcohol use, illicit or illegal drug use, um, and the more that kids know where their parents stand, the more impactful it will be on those decision-making skills when your kid might be at, you know, a party or somewhere else and they have the opportunity to use something, you know, they, and again, 
they might experiment and things. And the best thing you can do is be a safe place for them to land and someone to reach out to, to know, I want to make sure you're not in trouble, but that you're safe, right? That you're okay. Um, so there's that piece of it, but just, but also that youth repeatedly over time say again and again and again, the number one reason why they would choose not to say no to being offered a substance is because they're afraid to disappoint their parents. It, it always comes up again and again and again in studies. I can find one and link it to um, the show notes, but just, and it's crazy to think that we have that level of influence over our kids when they're like talking back to us and rolling their eyes at us and like, whatever, like, but truly when out of sight, you know, they do consider and think like, Ugh, what, 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 how would my, you know, that influence is very strong. So it shouldn't be discounted is, is I guess my point. I think the other piece that doesn't get lost on me, and I don't know if this is a, a takeaway in terms of a tangible like to do, um, but is also, I feel like you can't overlook, unfortunately, the amount of still shame and stigma that coincides with substance use, abuse, addiction, and mental health, to be truthful. And while the focus of this talk hasn't been exclusively or on mental health, I think we'll save that for a later date. You know, I'm very sensitive to the fact that I think these are still really hard conversations to have, especially if somebody is struggling with substance use or abuse. Um, I think it's hard for our kids to talk about and admit if there's a, a problem. And I think it's also really hard for our, our parents to be truthful. I think, you know, in, in the past couple of years, obviously, there's been a huge focus um, on mental health. And I would say that, again, is like a societal thing. I mean, I stand in line at the grocery store and I see magazine covers related to mental health. Yeah. Um, and you've certainly talked about sort of the link between mental health and substance abuse, but substance abuse, unfortunately, often kind of like sits quietly over in the corner and nobody really quite wants to talk about it, mm. um, which is a shame because it needs to be talked about. And so obviously, I, I know we obviously do instruction and we do curriculum programming. And certainly Beth Ann has talked a lot about sort of even her experience as a, as a health and PE teacher. Um, but I do, I, I think that's the hard part that we continue to sort of struggle with is, is being willing to sort of own or at least come forward when somebody's having a hard time and is in need of help. Um, I think that's an ongoing battle. It's a perfect setup, Sarah, because my next question would be, if there is someone listening that's concerned about their student or even adolescents or students to have if they're concerned about a friend, um, what would be the resources that you could share with us that I can, of course, link up as well um, within the district community that are available for parents, for students? For yeah, so I would say, you know, the easy place to start with that conversation is, is obviously our, our school counselors who are often and always a resource to their students and want to be available for a variety of reasons that are not exclusively academic. Um, and then beyond that, obviously, I mentioned earlier in this conversation, I work very closely with our 13 prevention specialists. Um, and our prevention specialists typically are working with what in education, we kind of talk about as our tier three students. So our students who are, are really potentially struggling with significant mental health and or drug and alcohol problems. Um, we're fortunate as our team has grown over the past couple of years. We have two prevention specialists at Downingtown West. We have two prevention specialists at Downingtown East. We have one at STEM and then one at each of our middle schools, Lionville Middle School, Downingtown Middle School and, and Marsh Creek as well. And, and actually this year we've grown to include five at the elementary level as well. 
Um, yeah, I know they just keep building. Yeah. So, but I will say at our high schools in particular, um, and our middle schools too, our prevention specialists, in addition to providing direct service to students and working with families, also sit on or facilitate what's referred to as their SAP teams. Um, and SAP has been around for quite some time um, in the state and obviously it's somewhat of an educational requirement, but I would also say SAP was designed at its core to really help students who are struggling with mental health or drug and alcohol issues and those issues are impacting their ability to be successful educationally. Um, there's a lot of different ways that SAP can look and function within a building, but Generally speaking, in addition to my staff, there are teaching staff who've been trained in SAP. And while they are certainly not diagnosing, they are certainly not providing treatment, they're not the replacement for such services. In some instances, they can be a really great um, role model or trusted adult for individuals who might be struggling. And then I would say even beyond that, we have services within SAP that also include, for example, drug and alcohol assessments things of that nature, which can go into a little bit more detail um, in terms of if there is an area of concern or a potential problem and if outside community resources or treatment should be considered. We've also been fortunate this year, actually, we expanded as part of SAP. We actually have also expanded our contract with Devereaux, who is one of our SAP providers. Um, and subsequently, we will have a little bit more comprehensive services afforded to us through them um, at East, West, and STEM. So I would say if, if you're a parent and you're struggling, and struggling meaning could mean any number of things. It could be a child who's having a hard time getting to school consistently. It could be a significant drop in grades. It could be isolation. It could be noticeable changes in behavior. What I've often experienced over the years, and it's not surprising, is, you know, something happens and all of a sudden parents realize they don't really know who their kids are hanging out with anymore, or they don't know the friend group, or the friend group has changed and the child is, like, no longer willing to, like, bring the friends over. Um, sometimes those things can be a bit concerning, and I would say if, if you have those concerns, you can always start with a school counselor. You can also reach out to the prevention specialist. Um, all of their contact information is updated on our district website. And certainly if you're looking to make a RUSAP referral, you can do that through the prevention specialist as well. Um, we also have the ability, and as you know, one of your community partners, Compass Mark, um, who's a, also a wonderful resource in our community, provides evidence-based programming free to schools and covers a variety of topics, including groups, which we did that last year in some of our buildings and we'll continue to do that this year. Um, so there are a lot of services that are available. Sometimes I think it's, it's hard to either one, well, it's hard to ask Two, it's hard to know what you're looking for. Mm. Um, and three, I, I realize depending upon the day, sometimes it's, it's a matter of who you talk to, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so obviously I realize with a lot of this work, it comes down to talking to the right person in the right moment. Yeah. Um, and I would say for our students who are concerned about their peers, very similar process in terms of getting in touch with their school counselors or prevention specialists. We have a lot of really great kids who do carry a lot of the weight of worrying about their friends um, and probably shouldn't carry that weight on their own. And so definitely if they're concerned about a peer and possible substance use, they definitely can reach out to a counselor or a prevention specialist and either have that discussion or potentially make a SAP referral. Okay. That's probably my short, short version. Yeah. And, I, and I'll, and I'll bother you and get links to put in the show notes yeah. so everyone can click 
and find the people or the places that they need to go. Um, And we covered a lot of drug and alcohol points today and perceptions, but we still have more to cover. So I think this is going to end up being like our pays part one, and we'll have to do another, a part two, focusing on all of the mental health indicators and data that we were able to um, get out of this report, because that's a whole nother thing um, to discuss. And Sarah, this is great. Bethann, this was great. Thanks, Christy. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, I agree. It was a great opportunity to share the data and to talk about what we've learned, but to also talk about um, resources and things that we're going to be working on this year uh, for youth and families. So, and I should also note, which probably should have been the first thing that I said, is that the entire full pays report is available on the downtown area uh, school districts website. And I can link to that as well. If you wanted to really go through all the bar graphs and percentages and indicators with a fine tooth comb, you certainly can. And it's available. So I'll link that as well. Okay, so thank you everyone for joining us today. So you will find information and links to everything we talked about in the show notes. And you can follow me, Chrissy, on Instagram and Facebook. That will be linked up. And that's just for extra information about CTC, different resources, the podcast, the blog. Um, you can find all of those things there as well as following CTC on our so- on the greater, bigger social media accounts. Um, be sure to click subscribe or follow in your podcast app that you're listening to us in so that you can stay up to date on our latest episodes and if you are liking our pod we would so appreciate and love it if you would tag us in social media or share it with a friend or forward it to somebody um, just so we can get more folks listening that would be great so we will talk to you in two weeks thanks sarah thanks bethann until we have part two we'll be back bye